This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, and welcome back to the latest episode of the Money and Markets podcast. I'm joined this week by Shares Deputy Editor Tom Sieber. Hi, Laura. Yeah, this week we've got not one, but two inflation updates for you, and we'll look at how markets reacted to the news. I'll also be talking about a dodgy start to the UK bank's reporting season and shedding light on why Lyft stock crashed this week. On top of that, I've got the latest update from everyone's favourite savings company, NSNI, with a boost to the prize fund for premium bonds. And our fund manager interview this week is with Tom Caddick, Head of Investments at Ned Group Investments, about where he's seeing opportunities in the current market. And if that wasn't enough, rounding out the episode, we've also got the first in our series of interviews with investors talking about why they invest and how it makes them feel. So let's start with the first of those two lots of inflation figures. Um, We'll go to the US first, I think, because that was earlier this week. So, Tom, what did it show? Yeah, so the US CPI measure of inflation did ease in January, but only by 0.1 percentage points to a year on year rate of 6.4%. Um, and it was expected to drop down to 6.2%. Um, this is probably kind of, this might be familiar territory for some people, but the reason people are keeping such a close eye on US inflation is because it has a big um, bearing on the decision-making of the US Central Bank, the Federal Reserve. So, you know, the markets are desperate for a signal that the current rate hiking cycle is at an end. And while this probably wasn't that, it was... <laughs> It was modestly disappointing rather than being kind of a real dire number that was going to properly upset them. And I think you saw that in the reaction. So there was a bit of a sell-off in Asia. Um, it was quite mixed trading in the US in reaction to it. Um, and UK stocks, which had kind of on Valentine's Day have been briefly flirting appropriately enough with the 8,000 8, mark. Um, it lost a bit of momentum off the back of it. Um, so not... Like I said, not drastic, but just a little bit worse than the market had been hoping for. And we've also had, obviously, UK inflation this week, which you've been covering, Laura. Um, and we saw another drop in the headline rate this month. Yeah, we did. And, and a bigger than expected drop, I think, for a lot of people. So we're at the stage where we're expecting inflation in the UK to drop down gradually. The government set this target of halving it by the end of the year, which is also um, what the Bank of England is predicting will happen as well. And what we saw was kind of further progress on the route to that. So um, the CPI measure of inflation fell from 10.5% in December down to 10.1% in January. Now, to those that aren't tracking these inflation figures monthly, that feels like a very small drop. Um, It's bigger than what we saw in the previous month. Um, And there's a few things that are kind of feeding into those figures, Um, particularly petrol and diesel costs. um, They're lower, actually, than they were this time last year. And so we saw quite a bit of downward pressure from there. we also saw there's been a cap on bus fares um, across England, a £2 cap on those fares, and that's helped to reduce the kind of transport segment of inflation as well. Um, and holiday prices not rising by as much as they had been before. So the price of flights, but also of hotels, um, they've come off 
they hit a kind of 31 year high at the end of last year and they're now not rising by as much so yeah. there's a few kind of glimmers of of positives in there i think the thing to really point out though is we're still in double digit inflation prices right. Rising. So when we talk about falling inflation, that doesn't mean falling prices. It just means prices aren't rising by as much. Um, and so one of the core things that we saw was that energy prices and food costs, that in- inflation there is still going up. Um, mm. And so people that spend more of their income and more of their budget on energy and food costs are still experiencing really high inflation and still will be feeling that pinch and more of that is going to come down the line as we see um, energy policy change so things like the energy price guarantee um, yeah. a higher level um, in April um, and some of that government support for energy prices will also drop down um, so some positive news but still a lot of caution out there in terms of the fact that we're still seeing this very high inflation even if it is dropping slightly yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I mean, you know, that that the fact that it is just a case of inflation easing rather than, you know, prices actually falling. So you've you've had prices go up loads and they're still going to be going up quite a lot, just a little bit, not quite the rate they were before. So I think you're right. That that is quite a, an important thing to remember. Yeah, you're right. Things are still getting more and more expensive, but just by a slightly lesser degree, which I don't think is much comfort for lots of people out there struggling. No, absolutely. Um, So on to the rest of the markets news. We've had Barclays be the first bank to kick off reporting season, but it wasn't really a great start to the season, was it, Tom? No, it really wasn't. Um, In fact, the results were a bit of a mess, really. So the fourth quarter profits were hit by a near 500 million um, pound credit impairment charge. So that's basically Barclays looking at what's happening in the economy, seeing that the outlook is worsening. Um, and effectively, you know, because times are tough for business and consumers, realising that, that that the risk of people not being able to pay back their debts has gone up. Um, I guess that's, you know, that's one of the sort of double-edged swords for banks of higher interest rates. Traditionally, that's good news because um, it should improve their profitability. Um, but because interest rates are going up at a time when you know the economic outlook isn't great, it also risks driving up the number of loans that have kind of effectively gone bad so that, that people can't pay back. Um, and some of its problems <coughs> were very much of its own making, so nothing to do really with what's happening in the wider economy. So when you look at the, the numbers on a full-year basis, there was a £1.6 billion pound hit um, to earnings from litigation and conduct charges to do with basically overissued some securities in the US. So this was just kind of a mess up on their part. Um, Barclays also has, unlike um, NatWest and Royal Bank of Scotland, it has quite a large investment banking operation. And that's really reliant on things like mergers and acquisitions and companies floating on the stock market. And those kind of deals have really dried up recently. And that's hurting returns for that part of the business. Um, and once you add on to that, that the company probably isn't being quite as generous with buybacks and dividends as shareholders would like them to be in a rising interest rate environment, there, you know, there wasn't too much positive to take away from the, the results. And another company that's delivered a fairly miserable set of earnings is the ride-sharing company Lyft. So what happened there? Yeah, so these were pretty bad set of numbers. So like you said, Lyft is, is a ride-hailing app. Um, headquarters in San Francisco is 
probably not on a consumer level anyway it's not one people in the uk would necessarily be that familiar with because it only operates in the us um but what what you saw in in the fourth quarter was that the company racked up losses when it was actually sort of being expected to to post positive earnings i mean there were there were some bright spots you know they they kind of increased the number of um, riders more than expected but there seems to be quite a lot less patience on the part of investors these days with companies which are delivering growth that isn't actually profitable um and what really really upset investors was that the guidance for the first quarter um of this year was was bad you know they they basically revenue expected to fall by 200 million dollars to 975 million um and had been forecast that they would be producing 1.09 billion um by analysts so the shares dropped more than 30 percent on the day in response and i think what really threw it into sharp relief is that at the same time more or less right it's right main rival uber was beating expectations and posting its strongest quarter ever um, and i think this kind of ride hailing space is one of those markets like the sort of takeaways market um which is obviously a market where, where there's a bit of crossover because uber has its uber eats platform um, but it's a market where it really pays to have scale and there's a bit of a kind of winner takes all element to it. And the contrasting fortunes we've seen in the past week between Uber and Lyft suggest Uber is streaking ahead at the moment. But an area that is actually doing surprisingly well at the moment is soft drinks companies. So clearly in the cost of living crisis, people aren't willing to give up their fizzy drinks. Yeah, this has been a bit of a theme for a while and it's one that kind of investors have been tapping into. So you've seen kind of businesses in this space perform quite well in sort of share price terms um and i mean you know it's not there's there's been several examples pepsico has done really well but this week it was coca-cola which was in the spotlight um as it reported its earnings <clears throat> obviously it owns you know there's the eponymous brands but it owns lots of iconic soft drinks brands um and it really delivered i mean revenue beat expectations it's What's kind of really underpinned that is it's able to charge higher prices for its drinks and that's enabled to, it to protect its margins. And I guess you can sort of see the logic of it because like a can of fizzy drink is a pretty affordable luxury and it's an impulse purchase. It's not, if you're thinking about cutting back and you're kind of worried about your bills, it's not an obvious place necessarily to cut back. Um, and I think it's also the case that people would probably be prepared to be pay, you know, a few cents or a few pence more to buy a brand they like rather than trading down to kind of an own brand alternative. Um, we're recording this on Wednesday and it'll be interesting to see how Coke's rival Keurig Dr. Pepper fares on Thursday when it posts its own earnings. And it, fun fact, Dr. Pepper is actually the oldest. Well, I think it's the oldest soft drink in the world, but oldest US soft drink. Um, it was created in 1885, which is a year earlier than Coca-Cola. So. That's interesting also, to, we when we're covering kind of supermarket results, we're hearing so much about people trading down to own brands to try and yeah. beat that rising price at the checkout. It's interesting, I think, when we go through these company results to hear the kind of, like you say, the affordable luxuries that people aren't willing to give up and other areas where they are willing to compromise. And I can entirely see how the point that you're making of kind of, I think if I think about myself, I would usually always buy a brand name of fizzy drink rather than own brand. But there are so many other things where I'd be very happy buying own brand. Yeah, I think thing like food and snacks, you're probably a little bit more likely to buy kind of a branded than 
you know, I don't know, bleach, does it really matter if it's, you know, whatever, Flash or, you know, the supermarket own brand alternative, other brands are available, obviously. But, um, you know, it, I do think, yeah, I, th- I think those kind of brands really resonate with people. And if you're talking about, you know, paying 80p or 90p for a can of Coke, are you really going to sort of, that's not going to stop you from buying it, I don't think, is it? So that's not going to alter your decision making. So, yeah, so, I mean, they, you know, for the time being, at least, these companies seem to be doing well and they seem to have that kind of pricing power that they're able to pass on higher costs to their customers. So, Which is great news for investors, obviously. Exactly, exactly. Um, so coming back to inflation um, and those inflation figures, um, it kind of means that it's impossible for cash savers to get adjusted return on their money. And we've seen a bit of a savings war, war that we've been talking about on the podcast before. But NSNI has updated its rates on premium bonds and is now kind of the market leader. So, Laura, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so it used to be that NSNI would update the kind of prize funds and the number of prizes on offer with premium bonds maybe once or twice a year. Um, it now feels like it's kind of a monthly occurrence as the government back provider tries to keep up with the competition in the savings market. Um, and it's probably worth saying that premium bonds and, and NSNI generally, they're in this tricky balancing act where they want to attract enough savers in a year, so offer an attractive enough prize fund or interest rate on their other more standard accounts to get enough savers through the door and get enough money in. But they always say that they don't want to overcook it. They don't want to set the rate too high and get a flood of savers in and then have to adjust it downwards. We yeah. also had an interview with um, NSNI boss Ian Ackley on a previous episode, so definitely go back and check that out. And he said that they would never try and be market leading. They wouldn't want to lead competition in the market and set rates, which is why this increase is particularly interesting because they are now market leading. If you look at their prize fund rate, which is kind of – the average return you'd get if you had average odds of winning, um, that's going to increase from March from 3.15% at the moment to 3.3%. And that takes it above the current top easy access account, um, which is 3.1%. Um, so it's quite interesting, A, that they're increasing rates by so much, um, but also that they're doing it so much more frequently now than they used to. But what this means for premium bond holders is that there's another 15 million in the prize fund. Um, you've still only got two chances of winning that top £1 million prize, um, and your odds of winning are still the same. So there's still uh, 24,000 to one. But if you do win, you're more likely to win a larger prize. So what they've done is increase the number of prizes, apart from those two uh, top prizes of a million. So potentially it's good for premium bond holders. It means that they, they could win more money and see more of a return on that money. But as I always say when I talk about premium bonds, um, for the majority of people, it's better off being in a conventional savings account. For those people that win £1 million, there's going to be thousands if not hundreds of thousands of holders who win absolutely nothing so i think there's a few areas where it's you might want to be a premium bond holder if you're a if you're a gambler if you think that the rate on savings rates isn't enough to interest you um and you want to just chance it to win the million pound prize but you're happy winning nothing then i think that's fine um the other area where i think it 
it could be quite interesting, particularly at the moment, is um, people that might start paying tax on their savings. So one of the big selling points of premium bonds is that any of the money that you win in prizes is tax free. Um, Everyone has the personal savings allowance, which I've banged on about before, but it means that the first thousand pounds of interest you earn on your savings for a basic rate taxpayer is tax free. For a higher rate taxpayer, they get a £500 allowance before they have to pay tax. That was fine um, and more than covered most people's savings when interest rates were so low. Now we've seen this big uptick in savings rates. More people are going to be pushed over those limits, um, even with relatively modest levels of savings. Um, And so more people will be paying tax on that interest. So it's at that point that maybe premium bonds become a bit more interesting because those prizes are tax-free. But again, with the overall caveat that you might win nothing. And so you're better off probably paying some tax on the interest that you earn on your savings um, and still taking home a return rather than potentially winning nothing on premium bonds. Um, But obviously having no tax to pay on your zero winnings. (laughs) No, that makes, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Do you, I mean, have you got a read on why they've ended up in this market leading position if they kind of almost categorically had said they don't want to do that? So they have a target, a fundraising target that they have to meet each year. So the government sets them a target of how much of savers money they want to gather in because NSNI operates as a, um, you know, fundraising mechanism for um, government um, money. And so... I suspect what's happened is competition has really hotted up in the savings market. And we can see in the data that we look at, the Bank of England produces data each month showing how people are moving around their savings. And there's so much more activity of people moving, particularly into fixed rate accounts, but people moving out of accounts that pay 0% on their savings and moving to the next best rate. Um, So a lot of this activity means that people either will have moved away from premium bonds and into other accounts that are paying decent interest, or just that premium bonds doesn't have a sufficient draw to draw enough people in. And so they're likely not on their kind of target to to meet that funding goal. that would be my best educated guess on why they're now in this market leading position, having previously told us in that interview that we did with them just last year, they would never yeah. want to leave the market. Well, it sounds sensible. Yeah, absolutely. Um, right. Now, 2022 wasn't the best year for fund managers or investors. But as inflation slowly cools and the rate height cycle shows signs of nearing its peak, there is um, a growing sense of optimism. So where are the opportunities and what are fund managers looking for? Danny Houston has been talking to Tom Caddick, head of investments at Ned Group Investments, about what the current economic backdrop means for different asset classes. Tom, I suppose the first thing for people that that don't know Ned Group, just explain a little bit about yourself and, and where people can find you. Absolutely. Thanks, Danny. Um, so we are um, an investment management business. We're, we're connected to and part of the NED, the broader NED group, which is a really big name in South Africa, with NED Bank. It's something of a household name, certainly a high street name. Um, less so here in um, the UK um, and internationally. But we're an investment manager. We run um, internationally, so out of here in the UK, more than $5 billion. Um, assets under management, with a big focus really on identifying boutique managers who can really focus and on their particular strategy. And then we work 
in partnership with those groups um, and manage funds on the back of that. So investment funds that people can invest through. We also run our own range of multi-manager portfolios, um, which are there to meet a broad range of requirements for clients. So how do you pick what goes into each fund? How much on the ground interaction with, with the companies that you choose do your fund managers have? So it's always going to be a combination of what the numbers are telling us, so the quantitative element, and then the really important part, which is qualitative. So we always have um, a builder relationship with the underlying managers that we invest through. We will always meet them in person, um, know the team, know the business. We'll always kick the tires when it comes to actually going in and seeing the way in which they operate, uh, seeing their systems in in uh, live, in, in progress, so that we can really get under the skin of what they do. Last year was not a great year for investors pretty much across the board. Your funds were absolutely no exception. So I know some investors lost heart and I know that normally we see at times like that fund managers, managed funds doing better than the sort of tracker funds. Last year was a bit of an anomaly. So what can people take going into this new year as there does seem to be a shift? So I think there are a number of factors at play. Last year was was a horrible time to be invested, and we know that. I mean, it was once in a generation period where you saw significant weakness in both equities and bond markets. Um, and you really have to trace back quite some time to be able to see it, certainly to the degree that we saw last year. And we know all of the factors, and we can go into that as to why that was the case. But traditionally, you'd look for different elements of your portfolio, particularly if you're invested in a broadly based fund, for different elements of the portfolio to do different things at different times in in the market. Traditionally, you'd look for fixed income to be a more defensive, almost sort of insurance type um, position in your portfolios. And they just didn't do that last year. Now, you could argue, well, this is just risk at play. You know, we know that you have to take on risk within a portfolio to generate a return. And this was the flip side of that risk coming through over a relatively short period of time. But it was an exceptionally challenging period. What makes what you do different to everybody else? I think, you know, we think of it in a slightly different way. I don't spend my time thinking, how are we doing things differently? We spend our time thinking, how do we do things right? What's the best outcome? And what's the best way to invest? And that's where we channel our our energy. But I think some of the key differentials between the sort of areas we look is, we have our traditional asset classes uh, that we invest through. And we think about it as a toolkit, as a toolbox. What's available to us? And what are the different asset classes, the different strategies that we can invest in? And how are they better suited or best suited to different economic climates? We have other tools available to us in terms of the way we invest in fixed income. So do we want to invest in high yield, those sort of areas that are slightly more speculative? Not really in this sort of environment. We favor government bonds, but giving us lots of exposure to interest rates, 
because now that we've started to see those coming off uh, peaking is the time to be actually generating a really healthy yield, healthy income um, without taking any kind of credit risk. Because I was going to ask what it is that you can do differently because investors now are becoming quite savvy. They've got so many options available to them. And if they wanted to get the kind of investments that you were just talking about there, so you know the, those long-term things like renewable energy that maybe they can't get elsewhere, is that why they come to you? Absolutely. It has been a really popular area. I mean, we invest in in areas such as infrastructure, I, I already mentioned, but also areas such as music licensing, which has been a really interesting area um, and looks really attractive from our perspective. We also have within the portfolios a relatively small amount, but a position in, in private equity um, that still gives us liquidity, so still makes it a very attractive investment from our perspective, but it gives us access to that side of the market. And it's a market that's growing. We've actually done incredibly well from that area as well. So there are a number of areas. Now, they do require closer monitoring, but it's an area that we feel we have an edge. So it's an area that we know well in things like uh, investing in commercial property or infrastructure, or music licensing, care homes, all of these sorts of slightly, slightly interesting, slightly different areas in the market that require a very, very close um, relationship with the underlying manager, with that particular instrument and understanding what are the influencing factors that may be at play at any one point in time. But it does bring a different edge to the portfolio and gives us protection in different ways um, to maybe just a very straightforward traditional equity bond mix. Tom, thank you so much for your time. Many thanks. Thanks, Danny. We talk a lot about investing on this podcast and we hear from a lot of experts on what they're doing, but we thought it would be good to hear from everyday investors about why they got started investing and how they've found that experience. We're going to be running a series of these interviews with AJ Bell customers over the next few weeks. So kicking it off is Matt, who spoke about his journey into investing with a few key life moments spurring him on from having his daughter to getting a windfall of money. He shares how starting investing made him feel, but also the tips he has for other newcomers. I spoke to him and I started by asking him about his family setup. I'm very new to investing. I started about nine months ago or just at the beginning of the tax year, basically. And uh, it came about really through three things sort of happened all at once, I'd say. We had our daughter and that obviously makes you, you know, reassess your life in all sorts of ways. Um, and financially was one of those particularly. And um, being freelance, I'd often only have work sort of booked six months in advance. So I'd always been quite good with money in the sense that I never got myself into any debts or that sort of thing. and was careful about living within my means. But equally, we didn't really have anything either. And the future financially was always very nebulous, you know. Uh, but having a daughter may mean we really had to look at you know what else we could do and um because of course you want to you know provide more and more and especially as they get older and go to university you want to have lots you know a lot more that you can offer than just sort of living you know six months in advance so that was the first thing and the second thing was covid happened and uh like everyone else it gave you know everyone was running around like mad in their lives uh, and there was a bit of space and time to reflect on things and 
think about how things were going. Um, and finally, we uh, inherited some money, not a life-changing amount of money by any means, but enough that even I knew as a financially pretty illiterate person that it, it was too much money just to have sitting in your current account doing absolutely nothing. So, and that's when, you know, I'd heard, about, I'd heard the word investment and that was pretty much it. I didn't really know anything about stocks or funds or anything like that. And uh, I mean, all the, there's all the numbers at the end of the news, you know, the FTSE's up and the Dow's down and that might as well have been the shipping forecast for all, all <laughs> it meant to me. Um, so the first thing I did was went to my bank thinking that would be somewhere that might be able to help. They are a bank that do uh, investment for their customers. So I made an appointment and went and it was astonishingly unhelpful. Um, really, I was just begging them to give me some information. I just about managed to get the phrase stocks and shares ISA out of them before I was ushered out and I got a little pamphlet and that was about it really. So then I went home a bit despondent about it, not really knowing what to do and just typed, you know, how to start investing into YouTube. And okay, you've got to be careful with YouTube because it's like the wild west of uh, financial advice. But there's lots of great stuff on there too and uh, it was a good place to get started and learn about things. And it became, I, became, I got a bit obsessed with it and um, really annoyed my wife with it and going on about it all the time, like, you know, look, you can do this and there's all this stuff and if we let this compound for this amount of time then we could end up with this. And it was just really exciting. And um, so, so straight away started. Um, and it started, started first off with uh, simple things. Um, I mean, one of the biggest advice, the best advice I think I got on my, in my research was just get cracking, really. Um, you know, you can't wait for the ideal time. You can't um, predict what the market's gonna do. Um, the best thing is just make a start and it may not be a perfect start, but at least you've started. And from there, you've got a base to build and learn more and, and keep going. So I started and started with, you know, as maybe like a lot of people do, the more sort of robo investment type things. And, um, and then eventually was looking ahead into things like, okay, well, I need to set up a pension because I have one. So um, being self-employed and also not that good with financial planning before. So that was sort of once we got uh, plans, uh, systems in place for what we want to offer Clara in the future, then the next thing to do was start um, looking at a pension. And uh, that's what led me here. And partly because um, the robo things are fine, but obviously it comes with an extra cost and going into the future and hopefully as the, you know, the portfolio grows, you want to bring those costs down if you can and really and and have the choice and flexibility that a platform like this offers over more sort of you know uh, app only or robo advice type things and so do you have particular goals for investing are you just kind of saving for a rainy day or you talked a bit about um, your daughter do you have a particular investment account for her well i have a, a junior isa for her so mm -hmm. obviously um and that's great but obviously that money's hers when she's 18 so there's really no way of knowing what's going to happen to that money. <laughs> so also on the side, also, yes, we have a separate, I have a separate pot for her that I hope, you know, in the future, my ideal goal, I think, is, I, you know, I don't think it's ever going to be a huge, huge, huge amount of money, but I think hopefully something like, 
you know, when she's got a sort of direction in life and when she maybe, you know, in her early 20s, got a direction in life and knows what she wants to do and where, it's the sort of money that might give her a good, you know, healthy deposit for a house or something so she doesn't have to waste money renting is, is the plan at the moment. And then how about yourself? Do you have particular goals for yourself? Um, not hugely. I mean, just like to be able to... I mean, I'm the sort of person that would want to work for as long as I possibly can. So, um, although be paying into a pension and things like that, I hope we'll be working, you know, all the way, you know, for the rest of my life in some form or another. So just having enough money to continue the lifestyle that we have and enjoy working and not worry about being a burden on Clara in the future, you know, should, you know, anything bad happen to either of us. And uh, so that's, that's mainly it really, yeah. And so how do you feel now? You said before you kind of worked on a six monthly basis and maybe your finances weren't the most organised. How do you feel now you've taken those first steps and started investing? Just much more confident about the future. I mean, the future before was always very cloudy and a little bit scary. Um, maybe not quite scary, but it was just a bit of a concern on the horizon. But now I have, feel like I've got a very clear plan, a clear goal of where I want to get to or where we want to get to. And yeah, a very clear plan of where we want to get to and a method of how to get there. And it's not guaranteed to succeed, but it's a lot, an awful lot better than where we were before. How do you feel when kind of investment has done well and you and it's gone up in value? And um, do you kind of feel like, does it feel a bit like a lottery win or do you just feel quite vindicated in the fact that um, an investment's gone well? Well, having started investing just last year or midway through last year, I can't, I, uh, there aren't many wins to... <laughs> yeah, fair point. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I know that is just the up and down of the, of the way things go. And I know that, when I'm, you know, I'm looking at 15 years ahead minimum, hopefully in some cases more like 25, 30. And, you know, fortunately, I think I'm lucky enough to be uh, relatively unflappable and not a panicker. So although I've mainly seen things go down, you know, it's not by much. They're only a percent or two over the time. So I, it's, you know, it's, it's fine. It doesn't, it, doesn't, I don't, it doesn't shake my confidence at all. Yeah. Um, and so how would you take what you've learned forward for your daughter? So you said that you kind of um, didn't know that much about finances before and investing. You've now obviously learned a huge amount and taken those steps yeah. forward. She's four, so I'll acknowledge probably a little young to learn about investing. But, yeah, I um, try and talk to her about it, but she just doesn't know what I'm talking about. It's really <laughs> frustrating. <laughs> and you're not supposed to wish the time away, but I am looking forward to <laughs> starting. It's also worth saying, actually, that I am, I am determined that to give her an awful lot more skills than I was ever given. Um, it's just mad to me that I went all the way through school and I wasn't taught anything about any of this. You know, actual real world useful things that don't really take that long to learn. And have you spoken to kind of friends or family about it since you've started to see if they're investing or to kind of share some of your wisdom? Something must have happened to everybody during COVID because when I tentatively, tentatively sort of brought it up with my friends, they were like, oh, yeah, I've been doing this too. And, you know, they've been doing other sorts of things to me, probably more short-term stuff. But maybe it's a, a sort of trend that happened over COVID. It let everyone sort of have a think about their finances and their future. Um, and, yeah, I think I probably annoy my parents now whenever they sort of about financial stuff. I'm a bit like, yeah, you sure you want to do that? Uh, it's just, you could, you know... Are you sure I just leave that in cash for 10 years? I'm not sure, actually. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, what one thing would you say to someone who's maybe thinking about starting investing but doesn't necessarily, hasn't taken the leap yet? I think that whilst it's important to, uh, it's important to prepare in anything you do in life, but you definitely have to start somewhere and the ideal conditions are probably never going to exist. Much like, you know, having a kid maybe for the first time, you, you think, oh, you know, I've got to get, want to live in exactly the right place and I want to make sure we've got exactly this amount of money and be exactly here in my career before we do it. And the chances of those things ever aligning are just small. And at some point you've got to just take the plunge and go for it, I think. And the same is probably true of investing. You could, you could, you know, wait for the perfect time in the market and wait till you've got exactly the right amount of money you want to start with. But again, those conditions are unlikely to ever just line up. So I would say get started. And if I had one regret, it's not learning about this and not starting in, you know, maybe my early 20s. Because if I'd have just siphoned off 5 10% of everything I earn into some sort of pension or ISA at that time, the, you know, now would look very different and the future would look incredibly different with all that time, extra time that, you know, that money could have grown. That's all we've got time for this week. If you like the podcast, make sure you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode and it helps other people to find us too. And Dan and Danny will be back next week with an interview, Investment Trust, Alliance Trust. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.